Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians 5, verses 6 through 14. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful to speak, uh, to even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Welcome to King's Church. Jason, one of the pastors here, it's a pleasure to get to spend this time with you. This past week, of course, was Valentine's Day. And according to the statistics, many of you spent quite a bit of money for Valentine's Day. Any guesses on the estimated total Americans spend on Valentine's Day? $18.2 billion. $18.2 billion. Some of that money is spent on jewelry, $4.3 billion. Uh, $2 billion on flowers. Another $2 billion on candy and chocolates. Uh, over a billion in greeting cards. These, these are just some of the ways that we spend money on Valentine's Day. Now, one person who didn't spend a lot of money was Judith Hirtog, who wrote a piece in the New York Times uh, called, it was entitled, Against Romance, an Unvalentine. And she tells a story many years ago when her husband brought her home a bouquet of roses for Valentine's Day. Now, Judith is Dutch. You see where this is going. <laughs> uh, and her husband is Israeli, so neither of them grew up celebrating Valentine's Day. It was the first year uh, as a couple, as graduate students in the United States. And one of the uh, classmates of her husband was shocked to find out that Hertog's husband was planning to spend the evening, Valentine's Day, in the library. And he convinced him that if he didn't uh, bring her a romantic gift, he would risk losing her love. Uh, so this is how uh, Judith describes the, the story. She says, he came home with a bouquet of overpriced supermarket roses that would be on sale the next day. I wasn't as much bothered by the price, even though I'm Dutch, as I was offended by his unoriginality. I threatened him with divorce if he ever again brought me overpriced roses or chocolates in mid-February. Relieved to be able to go back to his books, he agreed and has never again tried to be romantic. <laughs> now, some of you are uh, elbowing your significant other, reminding them that you aren't Dutch and you do very much appreciate uh, overpriced roses and chocolates. Uh, and the truth is, some of you do like the expectations associated with Valentine's Day. It makes you feel loved. It makes you feel accepted. Uh, but others of you, like Judith, hate those rules and expectations of Valentine's Day. Let's face it. Most of us can be camped in, in one of two uh, ways, or labeled in one of two ways. 
Uh, Some of you are rule followers and some of you are rule breakers, right? Uh, I'm a total rule follower. I have been that way. Before I was a pastor, I was a rule follower. Uh, I've always been that way. Uh, I, you know, it drives me crazy to see someone cut in line. I, I, if I see someone cut in line, I begin thinking the worst things. You would not believe as a pastor the things that I imagine happening to people who cut in line. It's one of my pet peeves. It just drives me crazy. But um, I'm a rule follower. But I think some people believe that that's all Christianity is. That's all religion is. It's, it's just about rules to follow. And passages like Ephesians 5 give us this impression. If you've been following along in this series in Ephesians, uh, you'll remember that in the first three chapters, Paul focused on uh, God and what God has done for us as his people, how we benefit from what God has done. He didn't focus on rules. He didn't focus on what we're supposed to do but what God has done for us. That was the first three chapters of the letter. Here, starting in chapter 5, he starts talking about rules. If you remember last week in verses 3 to 5, in those verses, Paul talks about our sexuality, our money, and our speech. Now, a few things we should notice about this that's, that's important First, Paul assumed that God has the authority to give us rules to live by. If you're here today considering Christianity, and I, and I assume we have people, some of you have been Christians your whole life, others of you maybe aren't Christians and you're trying to figure that out, and we have people in between, so people are in different places in their journey. If you're, if you're trying to consider Christianity, you need to wrestle with this idea. Who has the right to tell you how to live? It's a, it's a foundational question. Now, our culture answers that question by saying, no one. You follow your own heart. That's the motto of our culture. But that's diametrically opposed to what Paul is talking about, what the Bible talks about and teaches us. Now, kids, you're learning a memory verse this month. Anybody know the memory? What's your memory verse, kids? I know, you're you're shy. Psalm, Psalm 145, 3 to 5, okay? So that's, kids, that's your memory verse this month. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Now this verse talks about the greatness of God. It talks about how great God is. And in your lessons this month, you're learning about God's omnipotence through the life of Jacob. Now omnipotence is a big word, but it it basically describes uh, the extent of God's power and authority. It tells us that God is all-powerful, that He created all things, and because He created us, God has the authority, God has the right to give us rules to live by. God has written the owner's manual, so to speak, for how we should live. Now, that's the first thing we notice, that, that 
we believe God has the right to give us rules to live by. The second thing is we see that the rules apply to our whole lives, not just to different certain portions of our lives. I'll illustrate this by comparing the difference between uh, the two major political parties of our country and how they view rules addressing our sexuality and rules addressing our money. For example, Republicans often promote rules regarding our sexuality, where Democrats often say, hey, hands off. Take the recent example in Arizona. Lawmakers in Arizona are attempting to pass legislation that labels pornography as a public health crisis. Now, the resolution passed a key committee there, and the committee voted strictly along party lines. The conservative members voted in favor. The Democrats were opposed. Republicans are rule followers when it comes to our sexuality. Democrats often reject the rules. Conservatives label liberals as sexually immoral. Liberals believe conservatives are prudish. Now what's interesting, you have the exact opposite dynamic when it comes to money. Democrats uh, recently introduced the Green New Deal to save the environment, but really this proposal was, a, uh, was really about revolutionizing the American economy. And the idea was, is to establish new and widespread rules, regulations, uh, increasing taxes on the wealthy, effectively reigning in what they believe is out-of-control greed that's destroying our planet and is inherent in the capitalistic values that many people aspire to. So Democrats want rules that give them more control over people's money. Republicans reject rules that threaten their wallets. So liberals accuse conservatives of being greedy. Conservatives accuse liberals of stealing. Now this is just one example of why Christianity can't be confined to one political party. Uh, God's rules apply to all of our lives, including our sexuality, including our money. And so as Christians, we can't just say no one has a right to tell me how to express my sexuality. But we also can't say no one has a right to tell me how to spend my money. God has that right. God has that authority. Jesus claims authority over both. And so as Christians, we have to be open to God's rules addressing and exposing every nook and cranny of our lives. Now, this is a vital point uh, that I want to make, though, in regards to the rules. And I try to make this every Sunday if you've been here. God doesn't give us the rules to follow so that we'll be accepted. Let me say that again. God doesn't give us the rules so that we'll be accepted. The gospel tells us God gives us the rules to follow because we are accepted. And if you don't understand that difference, then you don't get the heart of the Christian faith. This is a revolutionary point. It became clear to me many years ago when we lived in Santa Monica and I was talking to my neighbor, Bernie. Bernie was a great neighbor, older gentleman. Um, but he had a distorted understanding of the Christian faith. He was telling me about this TV show that he, that he was watching, and the show said, you know, basically all religions are the same. All religions are just giving us, um, you know, ethical instructions on how to be better people. 
That was, that was Bernie's understanding of what all religion is about. And uh, that bas- basically people are good and, and religion just helps us be a little better. And I told him, Bernie, you got to understand, Christianity flips this idea on its head because grace tells us there isn't anything in us that we can do to earn God's favor. It's freely given to us. And the foundational aspect of grace is that we're much worse than we're willing to admit. But God loves us anyways. And, and notice in our passage this morning, how does Paul describe us in verse 8? He says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now notice, Paul doesn't describe us as being in darkness, as if we're good people just kind of lost our way. No, Paul says we were darkness. Were darkness. That's a brutal evaluation of the human heart, of our spiritual state. We're much worse than we're willing to admit. And notice Paul goes on to say that now you are light, but not in and of yourselves. You're light in the Lord. You're light in the Lord. When you become a Christian and put your faith in Jesus... You become one with Jesus. And it was Jesus in John 8 who told us this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, the light that is in us is of Christ. It is he who transforms us. It is he who brings that light out of us. It's his righteousness that, that, that we get through faith in him. And why is this an important point? Because you've got to understand this point because it humbles us and protects us from ever believing that we're better than anyone else. This relationship we entered into with Jesus, it doesn't make us superior to other people. It changes our identity. That's Paul's whole point here. That's been his point in this passage. We become children of light. And notice God doesn't give us rules to earn this new identity or earn this new status. The rules show what it looks like to live as a child of light. It's the fruit of this new identity. Notice in verse 8 and 9, what does Paul tell us? Walk as children of of light walk in this new identity because what Paul is saying here a, ch- a child of the light will produce fruit of light fruit that is found in all that is good and right and true and Paul warns us in verse 11 that as a child of light it's easy to go back into those old habits And begin to reflect what it was like when we were in darkness, when we were darkness. He says in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. And this is the challenge for us this morning is if you're a follower of Jesus, you're either living and bearing fruit out of your new identity as a child of the light. Or you're living out of your old identity when you were in darkness. And, that, and that's what we wrestle with as Christians. That's where the struggle is. We easily fall back in those old habits. We become, you know, we're, we're children of light, but we often lose our way. We forget. We get distracted. 
Our hearts lead us in the wrong direction. And the wonderful thing, the wonderful part about being a community of faith and being a family is that we have other people in our lives who can help us and see when we lose our way. You see, I think that's what Paul's getting at here in verse 11 when he tells us, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Notice what he says, but instead expose them. Now, we talk about being a family here at King's Church. Part of being a family is helping each other when we lose our way. When we begin those, you know, falling into those unfruitful uh, habits that, that were a part of who we were before we met Christ, before we came into relationship with Him. Now, that idea scares some of you. I mean, can you imagine going up to someone and talking with them and saying, listen, uh, I need to talk about your sin. I need to expose, <laughs> I need to expose uh, this one aspect of your life and what I'm seeing in your life. Some of you can't imagine ever doing that. But listen, this is what Jesus told us to do. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. So this isn't original to Paul. This is the calling we have as brothers and sisters in the faith, that we are to expose. Now that, that sounds very harsh or it sounds very judgmental, but it's intended to be the most loving thing you can do for your brother or sister in Christ. It is to help them to see the ways that they are exhibiting those old, that old fruit of darkness rather than the fruit of light that, that Paul here is, is encouraging us to do. Now, he's not talking here about exposing the sins of non-Christians. We need to, to clarify that. Paul, Paul, Paul doesn't expect Christians to go around telling non-Christians how they're sinning. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, notice what Paul says. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? There he's talking about those outside the faith, those outside the community of faith. He says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? In other words, we are to hold one another accountable. We aren't, we aren't supposed to hold those outside the church accountable. We shouldn't expect them to follow Christ. We shouldn't expect them to produce the fruit of a relationship with Christ. But we are to hold one another accountable. And you are to hold me accountable. And I am to hold you accountable. That's how we love each other. Now, how can we do this without being self-righteous? Well, this is where the gospel comes into play. And you've heard me say this in, in terms of, of evangelism, that we're, you know, you're just one beggar telling another beggar where to find find bread. The same is true in this scenario. If you're called to expose your brother or sister's sin, you take the posture of one beggar going to another beggar and showing them where to find bread. You, you go as someone who has tasted the goodness of forgiveness that God gives. You understand where you've come from. You understand your own sin. And you don't come as a self-righteous hypocrite. You come in humility and say, listen, I understand this is hard, but I need to talk to you about this. And I want to do this because I love you. 
That's how the gospel transforms the dynamics of that conversation. Really, the gospel transforms both parties. The person who is exposing the sin and the person who is being exposed. The person who exposes the sin comes in humility because they know they need need the same kind of accountability. But the person who's being exposed knows this, this this doesn't cause them to lose their identity in Christ. They're loved. Uh, when, when, if you were to come to me and call me out and expose a sin in my life, if I'm rooted in Christ, I'm not seeking my affirmation in my morality or, or my self-righteousness. I'm, that's in Jesus. And so you can come to me and, and call me out, expose my sin, and I can look at you and go, oh, you know, you're right, tell me more. <laughs> tell me more. You know, because I'm sure there's more to be told. I love the way Brian Chapel describes our security in Christ. Notice what he says. We cannot do anything to gain more of God's affection. But because God has fixed his regard for us as his own children, we do not despair. We will never be loved any more by God And we can be loved no less, for God already loves us as he loves his own son who resides in us. We have all of God's love. If I know that to be true, then I don't have to be threatened by you coming and exposing my sin. I don't have to be threatened by that. And so ideally, a gospel community is a community where we are loving each other in this this balancing act of the gospel where you can, in humility come to me and have these conversations and I can respond out of the love that Christ has for me and walk as a child of the light. The whole point is being children of light is a communal activity. It's not something you do in your closet by yourself. It's not something you do at home by yourself. You do it you do it as a family. We do it as a family. We do it together. And, and I really believe that's part of Paul's point when he talks in verse 10 about discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Because I love that Paul uses that word of discernment because sometimes knowing, knowing what it is to be a child of the light, it's not black and white. I know some of you are black and white people. You like things to be clear cut. But life isn't always black and white. And sometimes you need discernment to figure out what it means to follow Christ faithfully. What what does it mean in this particular situation for me to be a child of the light? Uh, and And I need counsel. I need to talk to other Christians. I need to do that in community to to get discernment and to understand what would be best because discerning can be difficult at times scripture often describes a child of the light in very broad categories for example in verse 9 when paul talks about the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true uh, it reminds us of micah 6:8 if you're familiar with that famous old testament passage it says He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We get the same kind of feel of what Paul's referencing here. But but even with the Micah passage, how do we define justice? What does kindness look like? 
Um, how do we discern these things in real life scenarios? That's where we look to Scripture. We talk with it, each other about it. We do it collectively. We seek this counsel and discernment in your community group, in maybe your cluster group, and your various relationships. It's a family activity. It's something we do together. And so I'll, I'll end with this little warning um, that I think we have to be careful about when we talk about these rules that Paul's giving us here. I just want to be clear that following the rules is not the point. Following the rules is not the point. I want to take us back to the heart of the issue, pun intended there, uh, in verse 10, where it says, Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What Paul is wanting in all this conversation is for us to remember that following the rules can sometimes get in the way of our relationship with the Lord. In other words, we tend to assume the rule breaker is the one who is far from God, but the truth is the rule follower can be just as far from God. The rule breaker and the rule keeper can both be far from God. That was the entire point of the story of the prodigal son. If you're familiar with the story Jesus tells, uh, some people reframe that story and say it's the story of the two lost sons. Because what's the story? The younger brother asks for his father's inheritance and he goes and goes to, basically goes to Las Vegas and spends it all. And then he's left with nothing, and he realizes what he's done. And he comes back on his hands and knees to his father to ask forgiveness, and his father welcomes him. He forgives him. He restores him. And he throws a party for him. And where's his older brother? His older brother is in the field working faithfully for his father, and his, he doesn't come into the party. And so the father comes to the older brother and says, Hey, why don't you... Why don't you come celebrate your lost brother is, has been found? And the older brother, what does he say? I have done everything you've asked me to do, and you've never thrown me a party. You see, that story, the whole point is that the rule breaker was far from God, but also the rule keeper was far from God. Because God wants your heart. And he doesn't want you to follow the rules Let's, let's end with this scenario. Uh, let's imagine a widow is, is, is raising her son. She's raising her son by herself, and she's sacrificing for that son in so many ways. She's working multiple jobs to make sure that her son has food and clothes and opportunities to succeed in school. And this widow teaches, this mother teaches her son to be honest, always tell the truth, to be industrious, always work hard. And to be charitable, always give to the poor. And she tells him that repeatedly. And the boy grows up and the, and the mother puts her son through college. And the son graduates and he moves away and he never again speaks to his mother. Yeah, he sends her a card once a year, but that's it. But he follows her teaching he always tells the truth. He always works hard. 
and he always cares for the poor. He lives according to the rules that she taught him. Now, does that seem right? Does that seem just? What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it is it's, it's about the relationship. The son's heart is far from his mother, even though he's living according to the rules that she left him with. And the same is true of Jesus. He's left you rules to follow, but friends, is your heart still far from him? I think that's why Paul ends with these powerful words, verse 14, where he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You know, some of you, he's talking to you there. You're the sleeper. You're sitting there this morning, and your heart is dead to God. And this call is to you. Arise. Know Christ's love. Wake up and live. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for these powerful words from Paul that we can absorb this morning and begin to marinate in and consider. Jesus, you call us to the light. You call us to be light. And I pray that your love for us truly would transform our hearts so that the fruit we display becomes a reality in our lives. And thank you for the community, the brothers and sisters here this morning, Lord, who can speak into my life, can point me back to you when I've gone astray. I pray that we would be Continue to flesh that out and what that means. Give us that discernment, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.